This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Yeah, good. Okay, this is the last in the series of Disciple by Jesus. I was tempted to cheat and show you the video that I was going to show you on Wednesday. I thought, oh, well, you know. But I thought, no, I'll put the hard work in, sort you something out. Uh, so I want to um, ask this morning, what did the cross achieve? Because I think as you go into Easter, as you go into Easter, you can think, what's, what's, what's it about? And we kind of know what the cross of Jesus is about. We kind of know what Easter is about, but actually it can blur over it. So what I want to do is four different pictures of, of what the cross achieves. But the first question is really, uh, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? There was a, about, about 1960s, there was a, a question or an essay competition in the, in the Times, London Times, uh, asking kind of what's wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton, who's a bit of a kind of philosopher and humorist, he said, um, uh, he wrote this as his essay. Dear sirs, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Okay, right. So G.K. Chesterton, lots of people wrote really long essays. G.K. Chesterton wrote, what's wrong with the world? I am. And, um, and actually, if you're going to Google kind of what that question, most people would say, yeah, that's, that's right. Most, but most people don't use the word sin. They tend to use what the problem is, is us. But actually, if you dig into it, the, the problem of us is actually uh, the, the human problem. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, a writer, got imprisoned during the Cold War in Russia, went to the kind of gulags um, out in Siberia for writing what he wrote. He, put, he said this, he said, the, to me, the line separating good and evil passes not through states or between social classes or political parties, but right through every human heart. That, that actually, the, the, you know, it's not like, well, the Russians are good and the Ukrainian, sorry, the Russians are bad and Ukrainians are good or the Americans are good and the, the kind of Germans are bad or whatever, that kind of stuff that we can do with nations or racism. We, can let, we tend to do that. We tend to build walls between each other. You know, down in Palestine, there's kind of the wall that divides the kind of Jews and, and the Palestinians. And we tend to kind of put people and say, well, they're the good people, they're the terrorists, and they're, they're not. And we kind of do that. And actually, Solzhenitsyn, who says that's not the problem, actually the problem's right inside. Albert Einstein, in what is quite a famous quote, the true problem lies in the heart and thoughts of people or mankind. The problem's not the explosive power of plutonium. He's obviously writing at the time of kind of nuclear weapons and stuff. But the explosive power of evil of the human heart. And... And, and in one sense, what's wrong with the world is us. What's wrong with the world is what the Bible calls sin. And if you don't really get that, then, then actually the cross can feel irrelevant. It can feel like, well, what's it about? I've read this interesting definition 
about sin. Sin is the opposite of God's self-giving love. It's about grasping and taking. It's about that kind of turned-in, black-hole living. And that sense, it's a rejection of his character. One of the things about the Ten Commandments, I mustn't get off my notes, otherwise we'll be here a long time, but one of the things about the Ten Commandments is, you know, it says, um, don't commit adultery. People can process that and say, oh, well, actually, God's just saying, you're not allowed to have fun, you know, if marriage is a bit boring, you can't go and have an affair. You know, but actually, adultery is, is, is actually against faithfulness, and God is a faithful God. And, the, and you can work through the kind of Ten Commandments, you know, that, that don't lie or don't bear false witness. Well, actually, that's not just about, well, actually, it's wrong to do that, and actually, sometimes it's quite good to tell a little lie because it can make us look better or we can get out of a problem. But actually, lying is actually against God's character who's full of truth. And, and you can work through those things. And so sin is the opposite of, of God's character, his rejection of his character. Sin is living as if God doesn't exist. And it's an act of subversion against God's creation. If you read the story right at the beginning of the Bible, actually the world is in a mess because of sin. We tend not to think that. We can think, oh, the world's in a mess for lots of other reasons. But actually the reason why, sin's, the reason why the world's in a mess is because basically people decided to, we made the choice to be self-centered. We decided, made the choice to be our own gods, made our choice to say we wanted to be the center of the universe, not God. And actually... The Bible says that the whole of creation, you know, talking about environment, the whole of, of creation is, is groaning because of that mess that we've made. You know, why are there, why are there uh, earthquakes and hurricanes that dis, you know, and tsunamis that take people's lives? It's because the world's bust because we originally sinned and made it so. So sin is, so sin is the ultimate act of decreation. Sin destroys our relationships not only with each other, not only with God, but each other and our environment. So we're going to read the last little bit of Mark in this series. I'm going to say, okay, how does, how does, the, how does the cross sort the, that kind of issue? So let's read. If we turn to Mark uh, 15, verse uh, 20, if you've got a Bible, otherwise it'll appear up here. If you remember that we, see we had Jesus on trial, Jesus uh, being uh, mocked and Jesus being uh, whipped by uh, the Romans, uh, by the Praetorian Guard. They, they put a crown of thorns on him and spat at him and put a purple robe on him. There's a sense in Mark's gospel where actually Mark's saying, this is Jesus' coronation, like I prayed. This is, this is the coronation. They treat him like a mock king. They put above his head, you're the king of the Jews. And there's that kind of sense where Mark's setting this up. This is a, this is a mock coronation. Uh, and then in verse 20, he picks up the story. It says, and then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on the way in from the country, and he was forced to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Mark, Mark doesn't really go into all the details. This is just says, then they crucified him. I guess his readers would have understood the horror of crucifixion. Um, one writer said that every totalitarian regime needs a form of horror and torture that brings people into line. And, and the whole thing about crucifixion, although it was invented by the Phoenicians, the Romans picked it up because it was just a, a shameful way to die. Uh, victims were stripped naked and they'd crucify them in public places. So you were visibly open to scorn. People would spit at them, throw things at them. 
often because of crucifixion, the people's bowels would fail, so they'd just be, there's just kind of degradation of humanity, and the Romans enjoyed doing that. But Mark doesn't go into that. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see who would, see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, this Christ come, this King of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lamak, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those Standing near, heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man is the Son of God. Lord Jesus, as we, as we have our focus this week at God First on Easter together, we look at these incredible moments. Just written in a few verses. Just six hours. Just a day. In the whole breadth of human history. But Lord, I pray that you do what you said you'd do this morning, that you'd take us up the hill, take us up the mountain, and we'd see how amazing, how wonderful, how glorious is this death. And Lord, thank you that you didn't stay dead. Thank you that everything that the cross achieved, the resurrection made available to us. And so we thank you. We pray, Lord Jesus, as we look at four little pictures of the cross, that you'd help us to go home into this Easter week much more clear, much more aware of the enormity of what you've done. Amen. Okay, you up for that? So the, the basic understanding that, that and if this feels a bit like a seminar, I'm, I'm sorry, but the basic understanding is that, that actually God substitutes himself for humanity on the cross. Uh, one writer, John Stott, who's brilliant, he said this, it's a great quote, It says, for the essence of sin is man or humanity substituting himself for God. We'll be God, we'll be God, we'll we'll, we'll have the world revolve around us. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. Humanity asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. So that is so critical that we understand that. And you might think, oh, I understand that, but I want you to understand it afresh, that Jesus put himself where we were supposed to be. 
So we talked about it last week about Barabbas, about actually we deserve to die like Barabbas deserved to die. We, because we'd made ourselves the center, because we'd usurped God, because we'd subverted all of God's plan and God's character and creation, we deserve to be on the cross, and Jesus didn't deserve to be on the cross. And what Jesus does, he puts himself. Man asserts himself for God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only humanity deserves to be. Humanity claims rights that belong to God alone. God accepts the penalties that belong to man alone. Wow. Isn't that staggering? You know, we can sit here and think, yeah, yeah, it's Howard, he's going on, and we're in this hall, and kids are there. That is staggering, isn't it? We cannot, we must not ever, ever lose that wonder, wow, that God substitutes himself for us. And in fact, the Bible talks about it, it's all over the Bible, isn't it? So, so, so it, it says, so 1 Peter says this, he himself, Jesus, bore our Sins in his body. There's that connection between us and him. The, the, the great exchange, as Martin Luther said, he bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or in, Paul says in Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And, and actually, even those mocking him understood this kind of dynamic, but maybe they didn't. Because it says uh, in Mark 15, it says, In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. What? Turn to the person sitting next to you, or behind you, or in front of you. Why is that profoundly true? He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Why is that profoundly true? Engage with the process. Turn to the person next to you. Say, why is that true? Okay. Any takers? Any takers? Indeed. If he had saved himself, he couldn't have saved us. If he'd have come down from the cross, then we would have had to go up there in eternity. He couldn't save himself and us. They didn't understand. They mocked him and thought, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. But the very fact he stayed on the cross, the very fact that he was willing to substitute himself for us, it was because he was wanting to save us. And therefore, he couldn't save himself. Now, the Bible gives four, actually five. I took one out, but five pictures. And if you've done the Alpha course, five pictures of what this means to us, of that Simple truth that Jesus substituted himself for us in our place on the cross. Uh, The first picture is the slave market. And this is talking about sin's power. The whole thing about chains. The whole thing is about being held captive. Sin has got power. Jesus said, truly, truly, that means listen, listen, this is really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So the truth is, You might think, I'm not a slave to sin, but if you're saying that, then you're a liar. Because in some way, you will have sins that put you first, that put you on the throne, and don't put God on the throne, that don't trust God, and you're addicted to those. So it's easy to see that. 
if somebody's addicted to alcohol or, or kind of chemical substances and drugs, it's easy to see that addiction. Or people that get addicted to gambling, it's easier to see that addiction. You think, well, poor old person, they're addicted to, to that thing. They can't get free. But actually, a, a bishop called J.C. Ryle, uh, Ryle, many years ago, was a, a bishop of Liverpool, 150 years ago, he said, although we feel that we're eminently free, in other words, we feel we're free, we're free, we're choosing, but we're not slaves. He says, each and every sin carries behind it unhappy, chained prisoners. And the thing is, there are areas of thoughts patterns that you can't get free from. There are areas of of behavior that you can't get free from. And and you think that actually if I try hard, I'll get free. That if I get some, I I go to the priory, I get alcoholics anonymous, I get this counseling and this counseling. Actually, although those things might be helpful, ultimately, the bottom line is that Jesus is saying that if you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. Now, the thing about being a slave is what? You've got to do as you're told. You've got to do as you're told. It's like when sin comes calling, when you're a slave, you can't say no. When sin comes and says, do this, and you're, when you're a slave, you can't say no. And actually, that is the state that we're all born into because of, of, of what Adam and Eve have done, because of that's our nature. And, and we can't say no. But actually, that, it, it, it's a, a, a situation where actually Jesus on the cross has come to set us free. Does anyone know, before he puts the next slide up, does anyone know what the Bible term, fancy Bible term for setting us free from slavery is? You might learn some Bible terms this morning. When you read them in the Bible, you think, what is that about? Does anyone know? It's called redemption. Okay? Redemption. So you sing it, don't you, in these hymns, if you've been at church for many years. Redemption, you sing about it. What does it mean? It means he set you free. He's paid a price to set you free. He set you free from slavery. So the the Bible talks about uh, God redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt. And and there's this idea of redemption. But the thing about redemption is, that actually Psalm 49 understands it, you can't pay the price. No one can redeem. That means pay the price or set free the life of another or give a give to God a ransom for them. In other words, pay the money to get them free. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live forever and not see decay. The bottom line is nobody can pay this price. It's a price too high for anyone to pay. So we all do the kind of, uh, if you like the Robin Hood story, um, Richard the Lionheart is off crusading, he gets captured in Eastern Europe, and he's put in prison, isn't he? Do you know this story? He's put in prison, and they tax, John says he's going to, kind of gather loads of money from all the people of, Eng- uh, of England to pay the ransom to set him free. Yeah? And what they're saying is, what Psalm 49 is saying is, that nobody, there's no price. All the money in the world can't buy somebody freedom from sin. All the money in the world can't be- buy people freedom from destructive patterns. No, all the money in the world could do it. No, nobody, if, if everybody in the world were to die, it still wouldn't be enough to pay the price for one man's life. So in that sense, it's like, oh, that's bad. But actually, there is someone, isn't there? We know the story. There is someone who actually came and 
died and his life, the price he paid, the life he gave was, was enough to set us free. So Jesus actually, interestingly, sin is all about power. Sin has got power over you. So what does Jesus do on the cross? He becomes powerless. He becomes powerless. So they mock him and hit him. And, you know, I don't know if, if, I, if I went and went up to the two Adams and slapped him around the face. They, they're probably full of grace and truth, and they might just take it as a helpful sermon illustration. But Adams, the Man United fan, he'd be saying, I'm after you. You know, the, we, we, if people stand on our toes, we, we're cross. If people kind of cut us up in traffic, we're angry. My wife's always telling me about it. You know, but, but Jesus willingly lets himself be beaten and mocked. He allows him to, it's ridiculous, he allows them to lead him away. He allows them to nail him. And they think he's powerless, but actually he decides to make himself powerless. In other words, he takes on like the powerless state like we have. So Pilate, uh, in John's Gospel, uh, Pilate says, don't you know I have power to give you life or put you to death, thinking he's got all the power and Jesus is powerless, Jesus says you'd have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Jesus is saying, actually, I'm laying. No one, he says elsewhere, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. He willingly became powerless. He allowed himself to be chained. He allowed himself to be led away. He allowed himself to be uh, uh, abused and mocked. Uh, so he became powerless on the cross. So on the cross, he takes our powerlessness against sin and he pays the price of his blood. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In other words, that's what's happening on the cross. You think you can't win against sin, that's true. But actually, when Jesus died on the cross and became powerless for you, He gave you the power to be free from sin. This is what it says in Revelation 1.5, praising Jesus. It says, <clears throat> to Him who loved us and has, say this word, say it loudly, freed us, freed us from our sins by his blood. I've counseled people over the years who say, I can't get free from this addiction. I can't get free from this pattern of behavior. This sin that's been done for me, done against me, is defining me. I can't get free. The truth is, that is not true anymore. People read Romans 7, it says, oh, the good things I want to do, I don't want to do, I can't do, and the things I, are the, good, the bad things I don't want to do, I'm doing them all the time. That's not a Christian. That's a person who's trying to fulfill the law. It's a person who's trying to keep the rules and realize I'm powerless. I can't keep the rules. But Jesus has set us free from the power of sin. You can live differently. Thank you, Gary, for nodding. Thank you, Gary, for nodding. <laughs> I love that hymn. We used to sing it as a kid when I was to go to Methodist Church. It's And Can It Be? And it says, there's a verse in there that says, uh, uh, so long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound bound in sin and nature's night says thine eye diffuses God's eye sends a light from heaven revelation I know who Jesus is uh, thine eye diffuses a quickening ray uh, I rose uh, my chains fell off my heart was free I rose went forth and followed him that's what it is freedom you do not so when sin comes knocking 
And you know what sin's face looks like because you've looked at him week after week and he said you can't be free. When sin's face comes knocking, you say, no longer. It's like the story, and I've used this illustration before. If you were in prison, you have to do what the prison warder says. You've got to do what the prison guard says. If you're a slave, you do what the slave owner says. But once you're free, the prison owner can come and say to you, Gary, you need to do X and Y, Z, or I'm not picking on you, Gary, I've got to say, Richard, uh, you know, you have to do this because I am your master. You can say, I am free. I'm no longer under your power. Is that important? You need to understand that because actually it means you don't have to sin. I can't help it. I feel a bit lonely. I feel a bit sad. I feel a bit sorry for myself. You know, and it, sin says you can't be free. But actually the gospel says you're redeemed. The courtroom. That's the next picture. This is one you hear, always hear about. Sin has got penalty. The wages of the righteous, in other words, if you have no sin, is life. But the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. In other words, why do people die? I always have this discussion with my kids. Why do, why do, why do you die? You've got a clue in that verse, so answer me. Why do people die? Thank you. You don't die from old age. You don't die because the sun is burning up your, your kind of uh, amino acids and they're not being replaced enough and therefore you're aging. You don't die because of the harmful radiation of the sun. You don't die because of that. You die because of sin. Well, there was no death in the world before sin. So as you're getting older, Kath, as we're all getting older, it's because we've, we have, by nature, our bodies are full of sin. Now, we, we wait for our body. You have a new body that's never going to be full of sin. But actually, that's what death is. It's, a, it's the result of sin. It's the penalty of sin. And so Job, in, in the Old Testament, he says this. He's talking about it. He says, truly, I know that this is so. How can a man be right with God? It's impossible. How can it happen? How can, how can I be righteous that I don't die? Not just physically, but forever. How can it be like that? It's impossible. How can truly I know it's so, but how can a man be right with God? It's impossible. But on the cross, Jesus does what? He willingly pays our penalty. It's the most obvious thing about the cross. It says in Mark 15, doesn't it? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. He really did die. He really did die. He paid the penalty. He paid the penalty so that we could be justified. The word justified, does anybody know, if you went to Sunday school as a little kid, they teach you a little rhyme. Emma's nodding, so she might know it. What does justified mean? It's like a legal term, and it means what? Just as if I've never sinned. It's the whole idea of a courtroom that you're counted not guilty. And the Alpha Course to tell a story, don't they, of uh, uh, two guys who grew up together as friends. Uh, One guy uh, obviously did well and goes up and becomes a uh, a QC, and then becomes a judge, and his friend falls on hard times and eventually becomes a criminal. And they, uh, the criminal appears before the judge, and the judge loves his old friend, and he's sad because of what's happened, and he'd love to set him free. But because he's a judge and must do what's right, he also must get, pay him, sentence him to the full penalty of the law. And, uh, and in the Alpha Course, the story goes that actually the judge... Uh, sentences his, his uh, friend to the full weight of the law, you know, let's say a 10,000 pound fine. His friends say, I can't pay it. How can I possibly pay it? 
And then what happens is the judge comes down and writes a check for the full amount of the fine so his friend can go free. But actually, it's not just an amount of money that Jesus pays. There's no amount of money, as we've said already, that's good enough. There's no amount of money that can set people free. There's no amount of money that, 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 that can do it. Actually, what's required is, is your life. Because death is the penalty. So Jesus pays the debt. Comes down from heaven. Comes down from his seat as the judge of the earth and empties himself on the cross and pays his death for you. And and that makes him both just, says in Romans, he's the one that does the right thing, he doesn't just let us off, and the justifier, the one who counts us as not guilty. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. And I love this kind of swap over. It says, he was pierced, so Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. You get this exchange again. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And then I love this, it says, verse 11, by knowledge of him, my righteous, so in other words, doesn't deserve to die, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. In other words, he makes it so you're not guilty. Most people don't feel a sense of sin, but they might feel a sense of guilt. Oh, I wish that I hadn't done that. Or, you know, we feel that we, you know, if people really knew what we were like, that we understand a sense of guilt. We understand that we're not good enough for good. And, and it's a lie that actually you've got to try and make yourself good enough. The, the, the whole idea is of a courtroom is that we're justified. This famous verse, you probably know it. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For lo- what the law was powerless to do, you can't do it by doing good. God did by sending his own son. So that means you're freed from the penalty of sin. So you don't need to fear death. I do have moments. I do have moments where I think, ooh, I fear death. I do have those moments. What would it be like? What's it going to be like to stand before God? Because I know, I know what I'm like. And then I have to tell myself and say, no, it's Howard, there's no condemnation for you. You're not going to stand before God and he's going to be so disappointed with you. And you're not going to stand before God and he's going to point the finger and say, you should have done better. And I know what you got up to in secret. And I know what kind of thoughts played in your mind. And you're not good enough. I'm just had a... You've got to say, no, actually, there's a hymn that I love quoting hymns on this one. It says, uh, before the throne of God above, there is a hymn. It says, um, when Satan tempts me to despair, when I feel, oh, I'm not good enough, and tells me of the... Does it right? Guilt within. Inward I look and see myself and very aware of all my sin. No, upward I look and see who? Jesus there who made an end to all my sin. Freed from the penalty of sin. Forgiven, that's a great word, isn't it? Forgiven. Counted as righteous. So that's the second picture. First picture, slave market. Redeemed, price paid, set free. Second picture, courtroom, guilty, guilty. You cannot go free. Nothing you can do to get yourself free. But Jesus comes and pays the price. We're all on death row, but Jesus comes and takes the penalty of sin so that we can go free. Two more. The temple. And it's interesting because when you do the Alpha course, this is the one that people think, I most struggle to get my head around as an idea. But... The truth is, it's the one that our society most needs. Let me just explain that to you. The whole idea is about pollution. That we 
and, and Jesus isn't, we're not talking about air pollution or, you know, we had all that stuff in the air quality stuff the last couple of weeks in London. Jesus isn't saying it's, it's about what comes into you. We're worried about you after oh, drink polluted water, particularly if you go around Cheltenham, people have like to have those water filters, don't they? Because they don't like to drink the water out of the tap because it might have this, that and the other in it. People are worried about pollution. You know, if you lived in China, you'd be extremely worried about pollution. You go around through the cities with a mask on because you think pollution is going to kill me. And the Jews were worried about pollution. They weren't worried about that kind of pollution. They were worried about if you ate the wrong stuff or you did stuff that, that weren't supposed to be spiritual, you ate, then, then actually that's a bad thing. And Jesus says this, whoa, 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 don't worry. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. In other words, you're not dirty because of what you take in from the environment. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that makes them dirty. And he goes on to list a whole thing, a whole list of things. You think, oh, Jesus, he talks about kind of lewdness and sexual immorality and anger and malice and greed and pride. And you think, whoa, he knows humanity. And we're all very aware of that. I remember uh, a situation of uh, a, a girl who'd been sexually abused um, uh, on this estate where we were working. She'd been sexually abused by her uncle for, for years. I think, in, vo- in fact, he'd even kind of used her in prostitution to get money. It was just, she's just a horrendous story. And she, she's involved in the church and we're trying to work through this whole sense of, I feel worthless. And, I, and I'd say to her, I won't mention her name, and I'd say to her, what do you feel? She said, I just feel dirty all the time. I just feel dirty all the time. And actually, although our society doesn't do sin, all of us in some way can relate to that. I just feel dirty all the time. Or maybe at times we think, I feel dirty. Shame is a massive thing in our society. Shame's a massive thing in our society. You know, we, we're constantly shame management. We're constantly managing what, with a face we put up to people because we feel dirty. We feel if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't love me. They'd feel disappointed in me. So we feel shame. And if you've had stuff that's happened to you in your life, I've had quite an easy life. But if you've had stuff happen to you, and I know there's people in this church who've had stuff happen to them or they've done stuff that they feel ashamed of, uh, and, and they feel dirty. But actually, the, the, the brilliant thing about this is actually the cross deals with that. There's a bit of a... I don't know if anyone watched Britain's Got Talent. Didn't watch Britain's Got Talent last night? No, I don't worry. It was one very good. I just happened to be there. And um, there was this lady who she sang a bit of opera from Nottingham, and she said, oh, I've moved from Nottingham to Glasgow because I'd just been... People have been abusing me in my life, and I just felt horrible. And Simon Cowell said to her, she sings this brilliant opera, and Simon Cowell does his kind of savior thing and says, you don't need to be defined by all those things that people have done for you. You need to be defined by this beautiful voice. And I thought, actually, Simon, actually it's the gospel that can do that, not the fact that she's gifted. Because what if you don't have a beautiful voice? Do you then think, well, I am defined by the stuff that's happened to me? But actually, the whole thing is that actually that we're not defined by our dirt, by our filth, by our sins, because actually the sacrificial system in the Bible was that the that, that, that sacrifices were meant to take sin away. So it says in Hebrews 10, sacrifices under that system, in the temple, 
in Jerusalem were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never, never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came. So in Israel, what they do is they kill these lamb and these sheep year after year at Easter. They'd kill like, at Passover, like half a million lambs would get killed. I was, I, I, there were some gory pictures of lambs being killed. I thought, no, we won't go with that. But you know, there's, there's just, it was just this bloodfest abattoir. And they'd go through this and they'd remember that God had set them free and redeemed them and, and they'd remember that, that the blood had cleansed them. But the following week they just felt dirty again. They had to go again and again and again and again. But what happened on the cross is that Jesus became our sacrifice. The, the, the whole sense of when the Jews would see somebody crucified, they'd think that person's filthy. Cursed. It says in the, Bible, in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And they think that person's filthy. And they'd throw them in the rubbish tip afterwards, Gehenna, the, the rubbish tip. This, and they'd say, we don't want to have anything to do with them. They're, they're filthy. They can't bury them in a decent person's grave. They can't touch them. They're, you know, There's something unclean, something dirty, something cursed about them. But on the cross, Jesus became a curse. He became the ultimate filthy thing. So when people looked at him, they didn't say, this is Jesus in his glory. The Greeks who were there would say, ah, oh, what a disgusting, defigured humanity. The Romans there would say, oh, what a pathetic attempt at power. The Roman centurion would have thought, how weak, how pathetic. The Jews would have thought, how spiritually dirty, how obscenely dirty. Jesus becomes all those things on the cross. He becomes the sacrifice whose blood is poured out so that we don't have to be those things anymore. That we don't need to be dirty anymore. It says, um, says this in Hebrews, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? The cross of Jesus sets us free from shame. It sets us free from a guilty conscience. Sets us free from, I'm not good enough. I've failed, I've let down. If people only knew what I was like. It sets us free from that sense of feeling dirty. And sometimes we're not even aware how dirty we are until we're clean. Jesus makes us clean. So if you feel dirty, no, Jesus washes that away. And then the last picture, and it's the one that we've, probably find easiest and the one I love the best is the, is the picture of the family. You know, one of, I, I wish I could find the clip, but there's a film I watched when I was a young kid. I'm nearly done here. The film I watched as a young kid uh, called Sophie's Choice, which is about a mother and, and her daughters who are sent to the concentration camps. I've tried to look for the video clip. And in those times that they would... Um, they would separate the mothers who would go and the daughters in these camps. They'd come off these trains, horrendous kind of industrialization of murder, and they'd come off the trains. And there's a line that's just stuck with me from the film, even if you don't understand what I'm talking about. And there's this young girl who talks, who's talking about what happened, and she's an older lady. She's probably in her 70s, 60s and 70s, telling this story of what happened. And she said, my mom... She says, what do you remember? She said, she let go of my hand. She let go of my hand. Now the little kid didn't understand that actually there was SS guards who were ripping them apart. 
And that sense of you've been abandoned is massive in our society. The family breakup in our society means that we feel separated. And even if you haven't, you don't feel separated from people around you, and there's masses of loneliness around. That, that, that actually, human relationships have been separated, but actually it's because that we've been separated from God. Isaiah 59 says this, but your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have because of your sins, he's hidden his face from you and will not hear you. People say to me, oh, how do I, there isn't a God. I don't believe there is a God. The truth is, it's like they live under this cloud all the time and they don't know the sun's there. Uh, uh, obviously, in Cheltenham, we get quite nice, reasonably nice weather. Obviously, you wish you lived in France, but when you live in Manchester, like I used to do, Cheltenham felt quite nice weather. And I can remember when I first moved to Manchester, for, the, for like months, I never, we never saw the sun. I think it was like four months we didn't see the sun. And it's almost like if you say to a Manchester person, there is this bright, shining ball of gas in the sky that shines brightly on you, makes you feel happy, and brings life to everything on the planet. You go, they go, I don't know what you mean. And, and actually, our, our understanding of God, we think God is this bright, shining light, sun that brings life to everything he touches. And people go, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean? Because we live under this cloud of separation. And occasionally we shout out prayers in desperation, God, where are you? And he answers. But most of the time, humanity just lives separate. This was Laura's prayer. We don't understand. We separate from God. And humanity has done that thing from the famous story of uh, the prodigal son. The son says to the father, I want right now what's coming to me. In other words, he's saying to the father, I want what's coming to you. I wish you were dead so I can have your money, which is what we've done with God. I wish you were dead. I'd like to have all your benefits, but I don't want you. So he divided his property between them. So not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And they squandered his wealth in wild living. That is what's happened with humanity. We've said, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And we've gone off to a distant country. We've gone off to as far away as possible. We've done what Adam and Eve did. We've hid ourselves away as far as possible. But what happens on the cross is that Jesus is separated from his Father. At noon, it says in Mark 15, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. There's a line in a, in a, in a song that you might sing. It's a bit more modern. Uh, it's, the song's called, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there's a line in there that says, Father turns his face away as wound which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. There's a sense where because We've been, we have separated ourselves from God. What happened is that, that Jesus is separated from his Father. It's almost like the Father turns his face away and there's that darkness that was at the beginning of the Bible. There's darkness over the face of the deep as chaos comes again. Uh, decreation comes again. Uh, uh, it's almost like he's, God, Jesus is, is, is cast into the chaos. And he cries out, doesn't he? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels a separation from God on the cross. He bears the separation because of sin on the cross. 
But let's land this. But it finishes brilliantly, doesn't it? The Bible means that we've been reconciled. Reconciled means what? Bring brought back together. It means you were row, you'd had a row and you brought back together. Families do that. They have rows, but reconciliation is great. Rows are bad, but reconciliation is good. I'm not suggesting you have a row to have reconciliation, but when you have true reconciliation, it's great. Reconciliation means you've been brought back together. That's what atonement means. Made, made one again. And this is what Paul writes. He says, um, is it up there? Yeah. Remember that at that time, when you were sinners, you were separated from Christ, excluded from God's people, outside the family. In, Jewish, in, in Paul's time, to be outside the family meant you had no identity. You had no identity. Without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away, in a distant country, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You've been reconciled. God's not far away. If people say God feels far away, they're believing lies that it's not true. God is not far away. Paul says he's not far from any one of us. He's close. I love the end of the prodigal son story. It says, but while he was a long way off, that same idea again, separated, while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. I prefer the word home, really, to reconciled. We're home. We're home. It's what the cross does. It brings you home. No longer distant from God. Forgiven and reconciled with the Father. Adopted as sons. So when you go into the Easter thing, we're done here, guys. But when you go into Easter this week, I want you to think about those things. Do you feel... Do you feel the, a, a sense of separation from your father? Well, no, you've been reconciled. Do you feel dirty? No, you've been cleansed. Do you feel you're not good enough? No, you've been forgiven. Do you feel enslaved? No, God has set you free. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.